People talk about an aircraft carrier and how long it takes to turn an aircraft carrier around. Turning the military around is like turning an entire continent around. Hello, On Assignment listeners. It's hard to believe it's already summer, but here we are. We're kicking off our summer series where we chat with some of this past year's DuPont winners. I'm Lisa Cohen, and I'm here with my co-host, Abby Wright. Hi, Abby. Hey, Lisa. It is good to be back in our summer series mode. Yeah, it really is. We're going to start off with NPR's Danny Zwerdling. Danny has won two DuPont Silver Batons, and he's something of a legend in the public radio world. He's been working at NPR since 1980, and he is a reporter for their investigative unit. He's known for creating some of radio's best, what they call, driveway moments. Right. When you're driving in your car, listening to a story, and you get to where you're going, and you just sit there in your car listening because you want to hear how the story is going to end. He's not just a consummate storyteller. He's also an intrepid investigator. Yeah, and on the storytelling front, he does a masterful job of helping his audience really connect with these topics. Mm -hmm. Um, In the mistreatment report, for example, we meet a highly respected sergeant named Larry Morrison, who now has all his belongings in a storage facility because everything else is gone. He was kicked out of the Army without benefits, which he clearly needs because he's suffering from the loss of all his comrades in arms. He's just incredibly poignant as he talks to Danny about how much he misses his friends. He even tells Danny that he welcomes the nightmares that he has because then at least he gets to see his old friends again. So Danny's been covering this beat for decades, and that's how he won his first DuPont Award in 2008 for a series called Mental Anguish in the Military. This latest 2017 win was in some ways a follow-up to that earlier story, and we're going to be talking to him about how both stories came about. So, without further ado, let's talk to Daniel Zwerdling of NPR. This is an edited version of the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Abby and Lisa, thanks so much to you. So, are you Danny or Daniel? (laughs) Uh, uh, Thank you for asking. Danny Danny or Daniel is good. Danny is is what friends call me. The only thing that that I hate is Dan, ever since Mrs. Turner called me that in the eighth grade. But that's for therapy. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit about the award-winning work that you did uh, this past year and that uh, won you the 2017 DuPont Award? Can you synopsize a little bit for people who, who, for the very few people who haven't actually heard your story? Can you uh, give us a little bit? And then I wanted to, to just follow up a little bit, find out what's happened to some of these people, what's happened to the issue. So th- this story that won the 2017 DuPont, it, it was really a follow-up. Um, going back years, back in 2006, I first did a series of stories basically saying to the country, hey, folks, at a major army base, and I focused on Fort Carson in Colorado, troops are coming back with terrible mental health problems from Iraq and Afghanistan, and number one, they're finding it almost impossible to get any decent help, and their lives are falling apart. They're, they're literally thinking about killing themselves. Number two, if they ask for help from their commanders, many of those commanders actually try to destroy those soldiers, you know, just rip them apart mentally and kick them out of the army. 
And as a result of those stories, there were investigations by Congress and by the Pentagon. And, and the Army said, this is terrible. We've got to fix things. And then months later, we are fixing things. Um, and as a result of those stories and some other re reporting by other reporters around the country, um, the Congress passed a law in 2009 that basically said, very briefly, it sort of shook its finger at the military and, and essentially said, guys, come on, when troops come back with mental health problems and they commit some sort of misconduct, like uh, drinking and driving or um, not showing up for formation on time or, or using profanity around an officer, don't just kick them out of the army and take away their benefits. You've got to consider, do they have brain injuries or mental health problems which are triggering this kind of behavior? And, and the implicit uh, admonition in that law was, so help them. Mm -hmm. So, so um, the, the story that I did with Michael DeYoana of Colorado Public Radio looked at the Army now. Well, it was 2015. What's the Army doing now, years after Congress said, you know, help those people. Don't just kick them out when they commit some sort of minor misconduct. And what we found is that very little had changed. Up to this date, very little has changed. And the military was still kicking out soldiers. And we got numbers for the first time, actual numbers. And this took months and months of, of you know, Freedom of Information Act requests and negotiating and arguing with the Army. But what we finally learned was since Congress passed that law in 2009, up till the point we were doing this research in 2015, the Army had kicked out more than 22,000 troops who had come back from the wars with mental health problems or brain injuries or both on the grounds that they committed some sort of misconduct. And actually, we were convinced the numbers were far higher. That's tens of thousands of soldiers not getting all the benefits that they expected when they signed up and said, I'm willing to, to die for this. And these were new numbers? These were first-time numbers? No one had ever gotten these kinds of figures before? Not only were these brand-new numbers, the military, the officials in the military who oversee the, um, the, the medical command and the human resources command, these are two, this is their words for the different branches that deal with medical issues or personnel issues. They told us they'd never analyzed these numbers before. And that was, that was amazing to me. We, I actually wanted to make a deal about it in our reporting, but you know, we ended up having to cut, 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 cut. Right. Um, and so I dropped it. But it was staggering to me that when Congress had specifically told them, you've got to help these folks, don't just kick them out when they commit uh, some sort of misconduct, if they have mental health problems, why wouldn't the Army have analyzed year by year, well, how many people like this are we trying to kick out? How many are committing misconduct? And they swore to us they had never run the numbers before. Now, why? Is that because they didn't want to know the answer? Is it because they're busy with other things? Is it ineptness? I don't know the answer to that, but I was, I was floored. And one thing that we found, one thing that Michael Dioana found and I found in doing our story, Mr. Treatment, is that in order to get the answer to a simple, what, what seemed to us a simple question, we had to talk to many different people. Um, for example, our question was, um, how many soldiers have you kicked out on the grounds that they committed misconduct um, since they came back from the war with mental health problems or brain injuries? Well, that seems like a pretty straightforward question, doesn't it? But it turns out that different people and different 
branches of the military deal with different aspects of that question. I won't bore you by breaking down the sentence, by breaking down the question, but the number of people who have mental health problems, that's one world in the military. The number of people who have been charged with misconduct, that's another branch of the military that deals with that. The number of people who've been kicked out, that's another branch of the military. So in asking this question, we drove the military crazy. And we sort of forced them to start talking to each other. They, people told us that they had not talked to some of the people they were talking with ever in order to answer our questions. You know, these are segments of society that previously were invisible to many of us before you brought their struggles to light. How did that all begin? Was there a specific story or person that first drew your attention to that issue? I first got interested in what was happening to the troops in Iraq and Afghanistan when I was walking along the street one day. And I was thinking there had been a lot of reports recently about the, the IEDs, these explosives going off, and how, how much trouble the, the troops were having fighting the wars and how the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq weren't going the way the president at the time said they were going. And I started thinking, oh, my God, what a nightmare to be over there and be surrounded by people you don't know if they're friends or enemy. You don't know if, you know, the, the garbage can over there is going to blow up suddenly. And I started thinking, what's it like for the mental health of these troops? Now, now you might wonder, so, so why would that come to mind as I'm walking down the sidewalk? Um, but for a very good reason. I'm married to a psychotherapist. Oh. My brother's a psychotherapist. My niece is a psychotherapist in the VA, actually, Department of Veterans Affairs. I've been through years of therapy, not for a long time, but I did go through many years. And so my mind just sort of works in that way, trying to figure out how are people feeling about what's going on around them. So um, I thought, well, what's it like for these troops? And when they come home, what kind of help, if any, are they getting for the terrible emotional problems they must be having? I mean, I was just making this all up in my head. So I started calling psychiatrists at VA hospitals and saying, hi, I'm, I'm blah, blah from NPR. And I, I've been wondering something. Well, you know, a few psychiatrists didn't call me back. A couple said, I can't talk to you, and they hung up. And then one guy called me back, a psychiatrist at one of the biggest VA hospitals in the country. He said, I can't believe you're asking me that question because I've just come from a meeting with a bunch of colleagues, and we're thinking, oh, my goodness, how are we going to – we can't even take care of the veterans from past wars who have mental health problems. What are we going to do with a flood of people coming back to us with really serious mental health problems? So I thought, okay, so this is definitely a story. And that's how it all began. That was back in 2003. Yeah. And then after that, I never expected to spend so much time over the ongoing years focusing on the military. But something really just just grabbed me about this whole issue. Um, Everybody was debating, is the invasion of Iraq or Afghanistan, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Should the U.S. be there? Should it not? What should it do? What should it not do? And this, it seemed to me that there was one thing that everybody, whether you're Republican or Democrat or anarchist, whatever, there's something everybody agreed in, and that is if a country is going to send young men and women to war and to to transform their lives and perhaps lose their lives, then the country should take care of them when they get injured. And I thought that this was a really, and still is, a really important way to talk about war and to f get people to get engaged in the, in the whole issue of 
what happens in war. You know, it's easy to, to talk sort of in the abstract about the U.S. military doing this or doing that, but, but, but the only way to really get people to, to, to internally feel what goes on in a war is to talk about these issues. And also the idea of mental health, you know, these, these people come back with physical wounds that you can see, but there's this whole other world that, that, that is invisible. And that's what appealed to me especially, um, partly because people weren't talking about the mental health issues. I mean, I, I had a, a close family member who had severe depressions, and I saw how it transformed his life and the entire family's life. And so it was, it was very easy for me to see that when a, a young man or woman came back and was seriously depressed or had, you know, serious anxiety disorder or had post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a, one important but very specific diagnosis. It's, there are many. But when somebody comes back with these problems, it, does just, it doesn't just affect him or her. It affects their Right. spouse, their children, their parents, their friends, their employer, every, you know, the entire community. This, this now is sort of everybody, you know, well, we know that, right? Well, back when I started doing these stories and a few other reporters were doing similar kinds of reporting, most people didn't know that back then, back in 2003, 2004, 2006. This, and it, it really took years for the public to start to understand these kinds of issues. It's so interesting. So in our in the annual budget of the United States, the military is our number one line item. My understanding, it's like the largest single thing we spend money on is the Army and the military. But what is it like interacting with them when you're trying to get answers from them? I mean, is it just a, a bureaucratic monolith? And, yes. And, and, <laughs> and over all these years, I mean, it's the opposite of nimble, right? They can't take in new information and adapt accordingly? Or what are their institutional challenges as they're trying to also navigate this new information? It's interesting you ask that because I was just talking with an intern a few weeks ago, and I was trying to explain how reporters, how we should deal with institutions. I, I had an epiphany a few years ago when I finally realized why is it that dealing with the Army or the military in general is so infuriating and just makes me want to tear what little hair I have left out uh, because it's, it's just so hard to penetrate. And I, but at the same time, it's very contradictory. There are great people in the military, horrible people in the military, mediocre people in the military, people who love NPR, um, people who you know, think NPR is a bunch of communist nuts, and I never understood, so what really is the military? And it finally one day, and this was the epiphany, the military is like a country. I mean, the military has more people in it, and I can't remember the exact number of the millions now of all the active duty and the reserve, and the, et cetera, et cetera. There are more people in the U.S. military than in many countries. If you went on a reporting trip to let's say Botswana. And I picked Botswana because when I went there years ago, it had just over 1 million people, a much smaller population than the U.S. military. I didn't expect everybody I talked to to have the same point of view. You know, I expected people from all kinds of points of view, all kinds of walks in life, all kinds of goals and philosophies. And when I understood that the military is like a country, then I realized, okay, now, I, now I, it's just a matter of figuring out, you know, who in that country might be willing to talk to me. 
Um, but the military, you're, as an institution, you're right, it's so huge and has so many millions of departments and everything is so rigidified and everybody has these rules that they have to operate by, understandably, because when you have a big institution, you want some sort of consistency. You know, it's, people talk about an aircraft carrier and how long it takes to turn an aircraft carrier around. Turning the military around is like turning an, an entire continent around. Really, I mean, it's so. Um, in some, I sometimes wonder why have I spent so many years now. Good question. You know, banging my head against the military's wall. Our next and question. I think, <laughs> and I think part of it is, you know, darn it, you guys are not going to thwart me. You know, the public has a right to know these numbers. The taxpayers and NPR's listeners pay your salaries. You people in the military, you represent the public. You owe us these pieces of information. I mean, I think that um, that was a very personal uh, series that you did with citing some individuals who really risked so much either to talk to you or to confront their their uh, army. And uh, one of them was Eric James, who was notable because he secretly recorded his own therapy sessions, which is, you know, unbelievable. Um, although you had a great quote in your piece where he said, you know, the army had become my enemy. And when you have an enemy, you have to do surveillance. So um, he went in yeah, and did undercover, uh, undercover recording and, you know, was able to show that there was a lot of insensitivity and just plain, I would say, malpractice. And what uh, I, I understand he ultimately was discharged honorably and got his benefits. Is there yes, an update can, on can him? Can I take one step back, though? Yeah. Because actually, because you've reminded me how I got into this in the first place. The, the whole reason I got into the story, it was sort of an accident. I had a question. I can't even remember now what it was. But I was following up on something or another, and I called a, a former soldier who's been a really helpful source, Andrew Pagani. And um, he ended up being briefly in the story. He was very important in, in this whole investigation. And um, I asked him the question, which I can't even re remember what it was about. And Andrew started doing something that I'm, I'm, I'll say publicly because I chide him about it. He started sort of going into one of his frequent rants about what's wrong with the Army and commanders. And the commanders don't blank, blank, do this. They don't blank, blank, listen. They, and I've heard this rant a million times before. And I was tuning out. I sort of heard Andrew's voice <laughs> in the background, but I was reading emails. I was looking at things on my desk. And suddenly something sort of, some words popped out of the ether. And I heard him dimly say something about, you know, that when I heard those recordings, that soldier secretly taped of his therapy sessions. Secret I just recordings? So exactly. So I said, wait, what did what, you say? Say that again? You know, secret recordings? And he said, y yeah. And he told me this soldier had been secretly recording his therapy sessions. Well, I, I said, why on earth did you never call me and tell me that? I mean, I've, he's been helping me on and off for more than 10 years on military stories. And, and he knows one of the things that I've complained about all these years is, you know, dozens and dozens and scores and scores, hundreds of troops have complained about how terrible many of the the support services are and how they go to so-called therapy and they com they've complained to me about how terrible these sessions are. But, you know, it's, it's and I believe it because I've heard it from so many different people. But unless we're actually in there like a fly on the wall hearing the therapy session, how can we be sure? Well, 
this soldier, as far as I know, this is the only time that anybody has secretly taped recordings and turned them over to a reporter. Um, so we, 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 I mean, we got him, we convinced him to turn the tapes over to us, the soldier. Was, was it hard to convince him? Was he eager to hand them off? It, um, it, at this point, it was not terribly hard to yeah. convince him, actually. this Well, this raises a journalistic issue. This is inside baseball, but for journalism students and others, that's important. When I said to Andrew, you've got to send me the recordings, he said, I can't. i got to get permission from the soldier. I said, well, well, that's easy. Call him up and say, please send the recordings to, to me. And then Andrew Hampton Holiday said, uh, you know what? I gave the recordings to another reporter, Michael <gasps> DeOanna. And I, I said, Michael, are you, are you kidding me? I, I know Michael DeOanna. He's a great reporter. And I said, well, tell you what, I have an idea. This is perfect because NPR has been talking recently about our management, had been talking recently about how we need to collaborate more with reporters at our member stations. And Michael DiOanna had just been hired by Colorado Public Radio. So I said to Andrew, and then my boss, this is perfect. I'll call Michael, see if he wants to collaborate. I'm sure he will, and we'll do it together. He has the recordings, and then that's that. And so I called Michael. He said, sure, that sounds great. And that's how the collaboration came about. And, um, and you've done a bunch of collaborations over your career, which, I mean, partnerships are now something that you hear a lot about in the journalism world, but... You've long been collaborative. What what is your what's the secret to a successful partnership in your opinion? Well, that's a great question and it's a difficult answer. It's complicated. It's like a love relationship. It really and really is. I mean, you you cuz I've talked to reporters who've had terrible collaborations. Right, there's a lot of trust issues, just yeah, like a love relationship. Yeah. Huge trust issues, and I've just been very very lucky. I think that's all it is, really luck that I've collaborated with um T. Christian Miller at ProPublica, and um, T. Won't like my saying this, but we kind of fell in love. And <laughs> I, I've collaborated on several projects with George Schultz at the Center for Investigative Reporting, and he and I kind of fell in love. And it was just we were we were all very lucky, and we've talked with each other about how lucky we were that we were able to somehow give each other the space to do what the other person does best, and not need to control everything. Um, I tend to be very controlling. I think T, Christian Miller at ProPublica, he's very controlling about, but but it, it worked great because we're, we're so different. He's especially great. I mean, he's terrific in general, but he's especially great at data and understanding data and how to get data and how to analyze data. I'm not great at that at all, but I'm, I'm really comfortable f- interviewing people and getting them to open up and say things that, you know, they've never told anybody before. And and T can do that too, of course, but I think he feels that that's more my forte. And so I think a secret to a great collaboration is partly when you recognize that you each have really different skills. That's great. You came to NPR in 1980, so you were there in the early days. It, well, it's funny you call it the early days because back then when they, they offered me a job out of the blue... <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I was doing. Um, I had. I had done a lot of reporting about environmental issues, in magazines and newspapers. And NPR uh, had just gotten a grant to start an environmental beat, and so they asked me what I like to do it. And I said thanks, but um, no thanks. And, and the reason I said no thanks is because, to me, as somebody who'd been freelancing for most of the time for the previous ten years, 
with one year at a job. Um, to me, NPR seemed like a big corporation, and I thought, I don't want to have to go to an office nine to five, you know, five days a week. And thinking about NPR being a big corporation back then, now, is laughable because <laughs> it was it was pretty teeny-weeny. Um, and I, I almost blew it off. And then the the... And I'm just going to go on and, and, and tell about a lunch I had because I think to journalism students this could be useful. The head of All Things Considered at the time, a wonderful uh, TV and radio producer named Chris Koch, he took me out to lunch at a pretty fancy restaurant, actually. I'm um, thinking about NPR back then. Maybe he paid himself. And he said to me, so what have you been doing the last 10 years? And I said, I've been writing for magazines and newspapers. He said, so if you took this job with NPR... We called it National Public Radio back then. If you took this job, what would be the worst thing that would happen? I said, I would hate it. And he said, so then what would you do? And I said, well, I'll go back to magazine and newspaper writing. He said, precisely. He said, well, what if you came and you decided, wow, I love it. And there was a silence. We were at an Italian restaurant. I remember exactly where we were sitting. And I thought, that's kind of a good point. <laughs> Maybe. So I said, tell you what. I'm going to give it a year. I'll come for a year. What have I got to lose? And then I'll go back to magazine and newspaper writing. And that was 36 and a half years ago. <laughs> guess so it, I guess Koch, it worked out, huh? Thanks so much. <laughs> but, but I always, but I tell young people when they come to me and ask for advice, um, and this just happened a month ago, um, I you know, urge them, look, this, you've, this opportunity has popped up. You never planned on it. It's going to expose you to new people, new skills, you know, new places. What's the worst that will happen? If you don't like it, then leave after a year, but give it your best shot. And what was that like learning the trade of radio reporting in terms of getting sound? And I know people still talk about tape, having good tape, even though everything's digital now. We do, I know, and even young people do. I love that. Um, well, it, was, it took a while to break in on several, first of all, technically. So the first day I came to NPR full-time, um, one of radio's geniuses, Robert Krolich, was working at NPR then, and he took me into our little teeny conference room. We didn't need big conference rooms back then, and showed me how to use the recorder. And he showed me, he said, you know, when you walk into an office to interview somebody, don't have this demarcation between, hi, you know, here I am, I'm Danny Zwirling, how are you, and make small talk and suddenly sit down and say, now, <clears throat> you know, press the record button. What do you think about the war? You know, don't do that because then people get all uptight. He said, walk in, be casual, make jokes, just be yourself. And as you start asking them questions, start putting the recorder together in front of them. So they see it's just, you know, just a wire and a piece of metal. And, a, and he said, and he, he taught me, he said, I do this. And, I, and to this day, I do it. He said, take the microphone and scratch your back with it. Sort of show <laughs> it's just an extension of your body. And I do that, you know, just to... You know, and we think it helps you know, demystify it and put them at ease. Um, anyway, so I went on my first interview. I think it was like the next day. And I was interviewing a woman who's a big deal in the world of food and nutrition. I remember her name, Ellen Haas. She's still around, I think. The, the, this is um, like January of 1981. And we were, I was feeling really good about the interview. I thought I was getting really good, you know, um, 
really good sound bites and I was asking good questions. <laughs> and about sense 20 of minutes. foreboding about the yeah, story. 20, 20 minutes in. 20 minutes in, she says, um, gee, is, is this one of uh, some sort of new fangled recorder where you don't have to plug that cord in? <laughs> I had been doing the mic back and forth to her, to me, to her, to me, and the cord was just dangling in midair, and oh, I had forgotten God. to plug oh, it into the recorder. Oh, my God. So I thought I was going to die or at least throw up. And then I thought, you know, I just, so I said, would you mind terribly if I just start over again? And she was so nice. She said, not at all. No problem. And that, that <laughs> I've, I've never made that mistake again, but I've made some other stupid mistakes since. So, so the, so the technical aspects of radio were, took a while to, to learn, but the, the, the biggest problem the biggest problem for me, and I think for everybody, almost everybody I know who's come to radio from print, is that I kept writing print. And you can be a really good print writer, but it's not great audio. Because in audio, whether it's a radio show or a podcast or whatever, we're talking to people, just like you and I are talking now, the three of us. Um, as soon as you start to read print, even if it's gracefully written print, as soon as you start to read print on radio or on a podcast, it, it, it's almost like it takes a little bit of helium out of a helium balloon. Mm. So when you have sentences that are print sentences, you know, each one, it's not like the balloon, balloon deflates, but every sentence, every long, you know, weird clause that works in a magazine but not on the air, it just takes a teeny bit of helium out of the balloon and finally by the end of your piece the balloon is now sagging and people are going to forget it in 10 minutes. So to make memorable, to, to tell stories in a memorable way, especially when they're about complicated topics and they're about the military or, you know, you're citing statistics or quotes, we've got to talk it just like we would if we were sharing a bottle of wine or a latte at a cafe table. And that was, that was the biggest challenge to me in radio. How do you get your news and information on an average day? What are you reading or watching or listening to aside from NPR? I don't uh, read or watch enough. I um, wake up with Morning Edition and TV, and I toggle back and forth between uh, the Today Show on NBC, which I think is a really good mainstream morning radio, uh, morning TV program. So I feel like that's sort of what mainstream TV is focusing on. It's a good representation. And I go back, back and forth um, to Morning Joe on MSNBC, but that you know, they have a, that whole quirky sort of um, revisionist Republican attitude. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the evening, if my wife and I are at home, we go back and forth between MSNBC and the Fox National Channel. Oh. I, and I love seeing what's playing differently and for recently for example it was just it was fascinating when msnbc and cnn were both for hours going on and on and on about the latest revelation about president trump when we would turn to fox fox hardly even acknowledged it um so, so i think it's really important to get those different points of view then i also i read the new york times i read the washington post and um I, you know, that's pretty much it. Um, I, I don't, I, I keep telling myself I should be looking at all kinds of feeds 
Oh, I check out Breitbart, Breitbart News. I, I get that, and I try to check it out frequently. But I'm not. But I'm not uh, one of these junkies who's constantly looking at Twitter feeds from a thousand different places because I don't know how I could get my job done. Not to even mention how I could sustain my marriage and you know relationships with my family and friends. <laughs> if I I don't know how people do all this stuff every day, checking millions of sites and then carrying on their personal lives. I just don't know how it's possible. Right. And I'm sure that some part of what you do is kind of try to keep up with stories that you've already reported to know what's happening with them, what the current thinking is. I mean, are you hearing about uh, repercussions of your of your reporting or others reporting on veterans' affairs? Yes. So, for example, um, as a result of our report, mistreatment, a number of members of the Senate asked the Army to investigate to find out, you know, why this was going on. And the Army, the Secretary of the Army, ordered an investigation. And when that report came out, I did a follow-up story about it. First of all, I had to get the report, and that wasn't easy. I had to file a Freedom of Information Act request just to get the report that the Army produced because the senators asked them after hearing our story. Well, that's kind of crazy. And then when I got the report, I started reading it, and it said, you know, we find that we really don't have any problems. And then I read deeper and deeper and deeper, and that report was was atrocious. It was a terrible piece of work, and it clearly – and I showed it to a bunch of people who are military specialists, and I said, is this just bad investigating, or do you think they deliberately were were writing it to – make this situation seem better than it is. And they said, yeah, no, we think this was deliberately done. You know, you had to have very careful writing to try to mislead the senators this way. So I did a follow-up on that misleading report. And then just um, last week, the Government Accountability Office put out a report looking at these similar issues, how many soldiers are kicked out on grounds of misconduct who have had mental health problems or brain injuries. Um, and they asked the question in a slightly different way than Michael DeOanna and I did for our story. But they found that, sure enough, yes, the Army has been kicking out tens of thousands of troops for misconduct, apparently disregarding the, fa- apparently disregarding the fact that they have mental health problems or brain injuries. And, yes, many are not getting their full benefits as a result. So the GAO report basically reinforced what we had already found uh, back in 2015. So I try to keep up with those sorts of developments. I also have been trying to keep up with some of the soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the soldiers who moved us most in our story was the soldier who ended it, Larry Morrison. Yeah, I wanted to ask about him. Oh, he was so poignant. His story was so sad. And, and it's heartbreaking, really, what happened to him. He had, by all accounts, everybody who we talked to who had served with him and over him said he was a wonderful person, an amazing soldier, a great leader. They would follow him, you know, into battle anywhere. This guy came back, stellar career. He had won the bronze medal. And literally on the day that he was supposed to get his full 20-year retirement, he instead got a document saying, we're going to kick you out for misconduct. And I won't repeat the whole story again, except to say that as a result of our reporting, um, there have been some important steps toward trying to restore him to, to something. I mean, he was kicked out, no benefits, nothing, as though he had not served a single day in the Army after 20 years of service and multiple tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. 
And he, um, as a result of our story, he um, got free legal help at a legal aid clinic that specializes in helping veterans. And they're now fighting his case. They're, they're, they have a team on it. And they're feeling a sense of optimism that they're going to help restore his benefits and his pay. Now, you know, that doesn't guarantee it's going to happen. But at least he has somebody who's gone to bat for him. And, and it feels incredibly gratifying that our story helped get that attention. On the other hand, you know, look at the tens and tens and tens of thousands of people like Larry Morrison who've been kicked out since the beginning of the wars. Who's helping those people? In most cases, nobody. And are you, uh, you have anything new coming up? What, what are you following these days on your reporting front? I'm finishing a, a big project on a drug, on a risky drug. And I thought that I was all ready to wrap it up and produce it and get it on the air. But I, at NPR, like at many places with investigative teams, our stories go through, you know, many rounds of editing. So uh, my editor felt great about the piece. Our main producer felt great about it. Another editor we brought in from another part of NPR felt great about it. But then we went to an, another level, and that guy, one of our vice presidents, said, I think you need to do some more reporting. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm, I'm saying this laughing instead of bursting into tears, but I think it's important that everybody who listens to this understand that it doesn't matter how long you've been in journalism and how old you are. There's still somebody who's going to, you know, read it or listen to it who sometimes is going to say, you know, I don't think you have it yet. You've got to do more reporting. Well, that's, that's the wacky world of journalism. And in the end, it's going to help make the story better. Absolutely. And I actually – and I told my wife – the very next morning, I said last night, and this was, you know, after I had had this meeting where I thought everyone, everything was going to go sailing through, and then I, then this vice president gave me the <laughs> horrible news that he thought I wasn't ready to go on the air yet. But that night I had a dream, and I dreamed that I was talking with this vice president, and I actually started getting choked up and started tearing up, and I said to him, you know what? I hated hearing you say that. But I think you're right. And I woke up thinking, I think he's right. I think I do have to do a little more reporting to have the story be solid and get it on the air. So I'm going to follow the dream. Well, we look forward to hearing your dream come to life on the air of NPR soon. Yes, (laughs) dreams come true. Thank Thank you so much for talking with us, Danny. It was really interesting and informative. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for your interest. Thanks again to Danny Zwerdling. It's incredibly gratifying to know that this subject has won not just one, but two DuPont Awards over the years. And so good to know that Danny will continue to track the story. Yes, and now is a good time to remind everyone that the window to apply for our 2018 DuPont Awards is still open, but just for another month. Our deadline is July 1st, so enter your best original audio and video reporting in either broadcast, online, or documentary. Go to www.dupont.org for more info and to enter. Who knows? You could be up there next January at Lowe Memorial Library accepting a baton. We could see you here at Columbia. This episode was brought to you 
by the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by Columbia Journalism School. It was produced today by J-School grad Chava Gurari with the assistance of our special projects coordinator, Millie Christie Dravo. Our music is by Dylan Nowak, and today's sound engineer is Ariana Sullivan. Follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod and find us at onassignmentpodcast.org. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode of On Assignment in two weeks. See you then.